This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by never having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by an acquaintance of mine. Uh, his name is Ian. Ian, hello. Hi, Dave. It's, um, well, you know, it's okay having you here, I guess. I'm literally your only friend. Right. Well, uh, just to get it out of the way ahead of time, this is another over Skype episode, so if there are any sound issues or awkward moments, that is entirely the fault of the people over at Skype, Inc., so blame them but uh today's movie is the silence of the lambs from 1991 ian you've never seen silence of the lambs no why um were you scared i I guess maybe a little bit at first um i'm not like i know this is supposed to be more of a thriller than like horror or at least that's what I understand. I could be wrong because I've never seen it. Well, how do you define um, thriller and horror? More thriller, I feel like, is more cerebral. And horror is more like the, the, the what's that part of your brain? Like this brain stem. The lizard brain? Or, yeah, like more like gut reaction, visceral mm. type type of responses. Whereas this is, like, suspenseful in a way that is supposed to be a little bit depthier, I guess. Depthier, huh? That's, (laughs) you know what I mean. Sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, other than doing it for this podcast, were you interested in this movie? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, so, the reason I never saw it for a while was because um just the the horror slash thriller genre to me i've never really enjoyed not so much because i was afraid but more so there's just i feel like there's a lot of bad movies in that genre you are breaking my heart with that (laughs) they're just bad films like there's a lot of bad bad movies how dare you (laughs) And I, I like good movies, but I understand this is supposed to be an actual good movie. So uh, I've been meaning to see it. I just found out 
this morning actually that I have Cinemax where I can I can watch it on demand for free now. La dee da, Ian. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to to doing that afterwards. And you know, there's a lot of uh, references and other bits of pop culture that I know to be from Silence of the Lambs, but I suspect that there's a lot more that I haven't picked up on. Like I remember, like uh, the Simpsons, Mr. Burns. Uh, I think that was in the monorail episode. I'm not sure where he's like brought in in like the uh, the dolly, where he's like he's like strapped in and can't speak. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. He's brought in on a dolly and he's all like tied to it so he can't move. That's and from that's from this movie, right? Maybe. Okay. It's and, from something. Yeah, I think that's when he had to give up the three million dollars. No, 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 wait. I'm confusing my Simpsons references, I think. Yeah. But he also has a mask over his face, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, are there any other uh, cultural references to this movie that you think you have, I, have pegged? I Well, I mean, I think the, like, fava beans and nice Chianti is, like, quoted in, like, one out of every five films. I see. Uh, so, so do you know the entire quote? Something, something. I ate him with a side of fava beans and a nice Chianti, and then he, like, sucks air in, right? Yes. Then he goes, or that could have just been in the thing I saw. I don't know if that's actually in the movie. What was the thing you saw? What was uh, what was referencing I, it? I feel like it was Mike Myers, but I don't remember if it was in Austin Powers or something else. I remember well, not liking the thing that I was watching. I see. So Here's the real question, Austin Ian. Powers, but... I, I, I want to ask you this, Ian. What's a Chianti? It's a it's a sweet wine. Okay. Uh, Just checking. Ita- Italian, I believe. All right. Please. Um, I-, I have Cinemax. I know what Chianti is. You are a <laughs> cultured individual, <laughs> sir. So let me um back it out a little bit and get a more general sense of uh, your impression of this movie. Like You said that you think this is, quote unquote, a good movie. Does it have that reputation to you for any reason? Uh, well, Anthony Hopkins, I don't think, does bad movies, except for that one that I saw where he was an anthropologist and he was really mad that all his gorilla friends died, so he killed a bunch of people and went to jail. Instinct? Uh, instinct, yeah. <laughs> let me let me interrupt just to yeah. assure you, Anthony Hopkins does tons of bad movies. Does he? Some of which from this film series. Huh. Yeah. I th- I thought he was one of those actors that was just kind of like above that. No, he's absolutely not. Okay. I can't think of a bad besides Instinct. I can't think of a bad Anthony Hopkins movie off the top of my head. Oh wait, no. Was was he in Blue Velvet? No, but he's also he's in that movie with Alec Baldwin where they're fighting each other and a bear. I think that might also be called Instinct. <laughs> I don't I don't know that one. Oh, all right. We can do another episode on that one if you want. Between the gorilla movie and the bear movie, I think one is called Instinct and the other one has a similarly generic title like Human Nature or like Animal Urges, something like that. But right. um, anyway. I, I saw uh, him in the movie version of, uh, ah, fuck, what's it? The Shakespeare, when 
they feed the person in the pie. Which one is Titus that? Andronicus? Yes, yeah, and he was awesome in that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure he knows his Bill Shakespeare inside yeah. and out. Uh, who else do you think is in this movie? Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. You That's like all- her? Uh, I can't say that I know a lot of her movies. Actually, oh, okay. anyone else you think is in this movie? I have no idea about anybody else in this movie. I I can't even begin to guess. Okay. Do you know anything about the background of this movie? Like, you mean the background of the making of the movie, or the what the movie's about? I guess either. I I the only thing I know is the director whose name I forgot is the same guy who directed Philadelphia. Okay. Which uh, have you seen Philadelphia? No, but I have seen the episode of the uh, the Family Guy where there's the clip and it's just tom hanks saying i have aids and then peter like just starts bursting out laughing um that's everything i know about philadelphia and but i did i did watch one of his movies uh he did the um the uh stop making sense talking heads live film so i've seen that because you're a cultured guy because i dude i pay for cinemax what do you think the movie's about? Uh, it's so he is. Who's he? Uh, Anthony Anthony Hopkins's character. What he, is that character named? I don't know his name. Okay, Doctor Something. I know he's he's well educated. He's like a doctor. Of, well, he drinks Chianti, so he must. Be. He must be, yeah. Although Canty is really garbage, that's just for like barbarians, really. But mm. regardless, he's like a a professor, and I want to say he's like specifically a, an MD type of doctor, and I think a psychiatrist. But I don't know if that's right. Okay. And and what's the movie about? What does he do? So he eats people. So, but I don't know if he's a serial killer per se. What do you mean? Like in the like the the mine hunter like definition of the term. Well, it, what's the alternative? He just ate someone one time, so no, he's a, no, well, a single killer. No, doesn't doesn't this like doesn't the serial killer have to be something that's like he's like telling a story throughout his killings and not just killing a bunch of people? I believe that they're called serial killers because they kill more than once compulsively. There's a, what's the word? A serial quality to the murders that they commit. I feel like there's usually like something uh, ritualistic about the killings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that, you know, are hallmarks of being a serial killer. But um... yeah, so he's a serial killer. Fine. Uh, And he... he... (laughs) He he eats his well. I don't know if he eats all of them, or maybe he only killed one person and ate that one person. I'm not sure. Now that I think about it, I know he kills at least somebody and eats that somebody. Okay, so he definitely eats people. Yeah, I think that's part of the famous quote. What do you think Jodie Foster's role is in all this? She is, I want to say, is either like the detective or whoever that's after him or 
one of his students in med school or something like that. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. Interesting. So, th- I mean, that's a pretty pretty dramatic swing between possibilities. Well, yeah, I feel like one of them is the truth, but for some reason, both both of those things are what pops in my head, and I feel like I've I've heard the actual answer at some point. Um, mm-hmm. I just forgot what it was. Okay. And so, just just to be clear, who is the bad guy in this movie? I thought he was. Anthony Hopkins was. Well, maybe he's really nice. Maybe he's a nice cannibal. I mean, that would be a much more interesting movie, I feel like, if he he if he wasn't actually the bad guy. What do you think he wants, Anthony Hopkins? Like, what do you think his goals are in this film? I, I don't know. I kind of feel like he may have a, a mental illness... But, well, I think that is pretty clear from what you've described so far. Right. So I don't I don't know how to to sort of that's fine. Qualify what what the goals are of of someone. I mean, if you don't know, have... you don't know. I'm just I'm just trying to get I don't a sense know, but of what I, you know. I can see time. how it like may have. I'm just guessing. Like may have started as like an honest like scientific experiment type thing like let me eat this person's brain so to better understand it i don't know <laughs> so okay hang on <laughs> you think the anthony hopkins character started as just an honest professor <laughs> and then got so caught up in an experiment he was doing maybe he was an ethics professor perhaps and wanted to see how far he could push things ethically and maybe accidentally got too wrapped up in it and ate someone by mistake Oh, maybe it was uh, one of those things where he had, it was like, um, uh, what's her name? Harley Quinn and uh, the Joker, where one of his patients turned him crazy that he fell in love Mm with. Maybe Jodie Foster. That could be it. That could be it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um. You mentioned the one quote uh, about the fava beans. Are there any other quotes that you associate with this movie? Not that I like. I'm sure there are quotes that I will recognize when I'm watching it. But none that I know of right now that I know relate to this movie. Right. Right. Okay. Cool. 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 Because it's it's certainly one of those like that's just like everywhere in pop, pop culture. Like I'm aware of that. Right. So I'm sure they'll be like, oh, so that's where that's from type situations. All right. And so then just lastly, one last time, what do you think this movie is going to be about? Like, what do you think the conflict is going to be? What do you think is going to be driving the action? So that the Mr. Burns scene that I talked about earlier, I believe happens in this movie when he goes to court. So if Jodie Foster is the detective character, it's going to be about her trying to catch him or whatever maybe there'll be some maybe the father beans quote is like the climax where he admits that he was the murderer the whole time oh yeah yeah or or um you know it's it's gonna be her trying to stop him i feel like she's the protagonist he's the antagonist gotcha cool cool if she's like the med student she's gonna be the one that 
you know, she figures it out on her own and, you know, she's reports him to the cops or something. I don't know. Got it. Got it. Got it. Ian, um, like I said at the beginning, we're, I mean, I would hesitate to call us friends, but we're friendly. We're, we're, we're colleagues, right? Well, we don't work together, so we're not, we're certainly not colleagues. Do you find me attractive? No, not at all. All right, but even putting your disgust aside, I mean, like, if you closed your eyes and gritted your teeth, like, would you, would would you fuck me? I would not. I mean, I'd fuck me. No, I wouldn't. I, I literally am going to throw up right now just thinking about it. Okay, okay. Hurtful, um, but uh, I understand. I mean, um, cool. So, you're no uh, Tom Hardy. <laughs> who is? Okay. Well, I think that's about it for my questions. Uh, do you have any predictions that I haven't asked about that you want to get out there before we watch the film? Uh, no. I my only prediction is is because I mean, Ian. Here's the thing: I would fuck. Me. <laughs> I I think you're probably the only one, seeing All as right. we're recording this on a Friday night at at nine forty five. I got stuff going on. You don't know. <laughs> You're alone in a house with a cat. It is an apartment and there's no cat. Oh, So <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, any other predictions? You don't even have a cat to accompany you. Uh, no, I, I have a feeling there's going to be some other character that I'm not accounting for that, that might sort of be the wrench in the, you know, perfect, you know, good versus evil type trope. I see. That's an interesting, interesting call. Yeah. Well, it didn't this win a bunch of Oscars. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like it will be more complex than I'm imagining. Okay. I mean, th- that being said, does this move? Are you coming into this movie with this movie being particularly hyped for you? Not by anybody in particular, just heights in like the general world of film watchers. Um, right. So no one you know has specifically been like, oh, I love this movie. Well, it's more that it just has a, a reputation. Well, you have said that, which is why I'm here. But yeah, it's just, it just has a reputation of being like important and well done and, you know, just enjoyable to watch. Well, maybe that's a strong, that's a, that's a difficult thing to say, not enjoyable to watch, but a, a very fascinating watch, I'll say. I guess you're about to find out if that's true. Yeah. Well, we're going to sign off. We're going to watch this bad boy, and then we're going to come back and talk about it again. You ready to watch Silence of the Lambs? Let's do it. All right, word. All right. See you on the flip. Yeah, bye. You spook easily, Starling. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. 
Just do your job, but never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? So, Ian, now that we're back from having watched the movie, I would like to ask you again, would you fuck me? So, uh... Because I'd fuck me. I think, uh, throughout the course of our, uh, our friendship, which is, you know, bordering on, like, 15 years now. Friendship's a generous word, but go ahead. Well-wishing relationship. Mm-hmm. As in... We don't wish each other any immediate harm. Fair. Okay. I think you've been referencing that, like, on at least a weekly basis. And I always just assumed it was some, like, Dave, like, joke. Which I thought was pretty funny. But now that I know that you were just referencing Silence of the Lambs uh, and being completely unoriginal, I'm a little disappointed hurtful yeah very very hurtful oh that was the intent oh good all right well um i also want to uh, clear something up for both of us ian so i looked it up in between sessions instinct is the anthony hopkins gorilla movie mm-hmm. and it has cuba gooding jr not john leguizamo oh yeah that's yeah. right and then the edge is the Anthony Hopkins bear movie with Alec Baldwin. Ah. And also starring Bart the Bear, if you're familiar with that particular animal actor. No. Uh, Well, he's awesome. Should have won an Oscar for Bear or The Bear. (laughs) No, really, it's a real movie. Um, I don't think I've ever seen that movie. It's pretty good. Yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, we're going to start before we get into it with a little bit of background on the movie not a lot but just a touch so number one ian the movie silence of the lambs is based on the novel of the same name by thomas harris yeah i didn't realize it was based off a book even yeah yeah and uh that book is a sequel to red dragon which had when this movie came out it had already been adapted into a movie once uh the movie manhunter directed by michael mann and in that movie uh hannibal lecter is also in it. He's played by Brian Cox. Oh, cool. I like yeah, Brian yeah. Cox. Yeah, and he's good in it too. Yeah. I saw him um, in a on Broadway in Glengarry Glen Ross. He was really oh, well, he was really good. The Al Pacino yeah, one. Damn. Yeah. That sounds real good. Yeah. Well anyway, um Red Dragon was also later adapted again into the movie Red Dragon. Only this time it was directed by Brett Ratner. I don't know who that is. Well, try and keep it that way. Is he bad? Uh, Yeah, he's not great. Mm. So, um, Gene Hackman was actually originally interested in directing the movie, and he was going to star in it as uh, Crawford, but he Mm -hmm. ultimately left the project because when when he read the script, he thought it was too violent. Yeah, it was actually a lot less violent than I thought it would be. It's not 
gory or gratuitous violence, but I feel like in those instances where violence happens, it's really freaky shit. Yeah, I also thought, like, I mean, I knew it was something more than just a slasher, but I thought there would be more slashing in it. Hmm. This movie, uh, when it was directed, the FBI allowed them to film at Quantico, which at least for the time was very rare. So evidently there was a little bit of uh, buzz around this film even before it came out. So now I want to talk a little bit about the directing of this movie and the director. It's directed by Jonathan Demme. Are you familiar with him? Only uh, with respect to the the talking heads thing that I talked about before. Right, yeah. right. So uh, here's a few other movies that he's made. He did Philadelphia. That's a movie with Tom Hanks yeah, and Denzel Washington. I thought, he, I thought you were going to keep talking. He has AIDS? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hilarious. Um, he also directed Beloved, uh, the movie The Truth About Charlie, which I think is a remake of the film Charade. Uh, the Manchurian Candidate remake and Rachel Getting Married. Okay. I've never so seen any of those. Uh, well, how about his first movie, Caged Heat? I didn't even know that there was a movie titled Caged Heat. Oh, really? It's it's one of those women in prison movies. Oh. Yeah. It, it's one of one those. One of those. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. What did you think about the directing of the film? For this one that you have seen now. There was, you know, overall it was pretty good. There were a few choices that I thought were kind of, eh, like campy. Like what? Yeah, like what? Like the shot on his mouth when he did the would you fuck me line. I oh, thought, yeah. I thought, thought that was a little cheesy. And I, I don't know if this was a Jodie Foster thing or a directorial, uh, a directing thing. But I noticed that Starling repeats herself a lot. She, does she? What does she say a lot? You know, like when she was talking about carrying the lamb, you know, so heavy, so heavy. Um, uh-huh. And uh-huh. She, she, there there was something else at the beginning when she was talking, the first time she was talking to Hannibal, where she did the same sort of thing. And there were, there were multiple times throughout the film where she did that. It was something I noticed. I, I don't think that was bad. I think people speak like that from time to time. Sure. But I just thought it was interesting and it caught my attention. So as far as Jonathan Demi goes, I've seen a bunch of his films. Uh, this is my favorite of his movies and I like it very much. But I have to say, I sort of have trouble pinning him down as a director. Like stylistically, I have difficulty saying what his hallmarks are. That being said, so when I was uh, prepping to do this episode, I saw that one thing people mention about him is that he's apparently known for a lot of close-ups. Like and the mouth. Yes, like the mouth, but also um, close-ups, particularly on people's face, where the face takes up more or less the whole frame, and they're looking directly into the camera. Hmm. And that's once that, once that got into my mind, it's incredibly present in this movie. Yeah. I can think of a few spots just off the top of my head. Yeah, there's 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 tons of instances of that. And I guess we'll talk about it more when we get into the plot. But it, it was an interesting uh, little piece of directing that I had never noticed. And I think 
that's kind of cool that his directing was subtle enough that, as we'll discuss, it was having a an artistic effect on how I, you know, was perceiving the characters in the movie and I wasn't even noticing it. So I, yeah, I sort of appreciate yeah. that lack of pretension in his choices. Right. I don't know if that's the right word, but. Yeah, there's a um, flexibility in his style. And it's subtle. Yeah. No, no I, I, I see that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the cast. Uh, starting with, we'll start with our hero. Jodie Foster is Clarice Starling. Can I just, what do you think? Can I just oh, say yeah, go, go. that I would totally shoot Ronald Reagan for Jodie Foster? I would do that for much less, but also for that. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess we're a little too late, right? I guess so, but I, I had forgotten how beautiful a young Jodie Foster was. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, she's she's a looker. Yeah. So she, I thought, was, you know, pretty good. I wasn't surprised, um, but, you know. Sure. I mean, it's Jodie Foster. Yeah. Again, I think we're going to discuss this more in the film itself, but I, I think the thing that she really nails in this movie and her acting is she brings an incredibly well-balanced combination of vulnerability and that's kind of mostly in her physicality, but also comes up emotionally in some of her interactions with Lecter, but also in her strength and determination, grit, you know, it's it's a, an incredibly well-balanced character. Yeah, I think you completely nailed it. She was definitely a fully realized three-dimensional. Um, yes, she seems very much like a real person. Yeah, she, Jodie Foster did her homework for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I will toss out there were a few other actresses who were considered for the role uh, before they gave it to Jodie Foster who who wanted it she was gunning yeah, for it Michelle Pfeiffer right mm -hmm. also uh, Meg Ryan yeah. those two uh, I, I think are good actresses but I almost feel like they're too glamorous for this role yeah I see that there there's a Jodie Foster is a little bit more vulnerable and she looks a little bit more like a real person, whereas Michelle Pfeiffer or Meg Ryan, it's like, yeah, you know, as an FBI, you know, they're movie stars, not FBI agents. Right. Um, Lord Lord Dern was also considered, who oh, I think is cool. more in the Jodie Foster zone where she can disappear into a part. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I it's hard to imagine anyone besides Jodie Foster playing yeah, that well, role now. Totally. Yeah. All right, well, no sense putting it off any longer. Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter. He was fantastic. Like, I mean, I imagine you've heard plenty about this character, and you've, I'm sure, seen it parodied and referenced a lot. Now you're finally seeing the actual shit. What'd you think? It, I mean, it was remarkable. It lived up? Well, I'm not sure about the film as a whole, but his performance in isolation was amazing you know speaking of doing your homework anthony hopkins clearly did his he just really believed he was a psychopath uh serial killer yeah and there's something i mean his, even just yeah his like courteousness is sort of like uh the way that look in his eyes mm -hmm. it seems to kind of look through you yeah it, it was just it's special. Yeah. I, I I feel like despite how much that 
role has permeated pop culture and gotten parodied and referenced. And even in some of the later installments of this film series, uh, Hopkins' own performance, I think, gets a little campier and hammier. But in this original film, just the power of it is so undeniable. Yeah, and I I think that any more would be would be kind of bordering on camp too much. Uh, yes, so yes. like I think he goes right to the edge without going over it. He threads um, the needle perfectly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, enough to be like almost a little bit superhuman and a little otherworldly but without crossing the border into being a total supervillain. Right. I feel like if he if he did any more with it he'd just be, you know, Freddy Krueger or, or something like that. Yeah. And like I said that's exactly the problem with some of the later films in this series is that he crosses that border. Yeah. But uh so much so that I think, you know, to me besides the like besides Buffalo Bill, I, I feel like Dr. Chilton was more of an antagonist in some ways. <laughs> yeah, God, that guy sucks. Yeah, he. I definitely disliked him more than I disliked Hannibal. I, I love that actor, though. Uh, Anthony Heed healed. I actually, I didn't write him down because I wasn't thinking we'd discuss him. Yeah, but just saw I, him on him. I, I think, he, I, I, the, when he first came on screen, I laughed just because he's such a good sleaze. Yeah. It like permeates his being. I had to Google him because I I just swore that I've seen him before somewhere. And then when I was looking at his IMDb, I was like, I've never seen any of these things. I don't know why I recognize him. It could be uh, The Practice. Did you ever watch that show? No. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it's Anthony Heald with an L. Yeah, he's he's great in this. But before we talk about the other actors, I want to finish up with Anthony Hopkins just originally the person they wanted for this role was sean connery really he turned it down one of many incredibly big movie roles that he's turned down over the course of his career but could you imagine him in this role um i think i actually could really yeah Hello, Clarice. (laughs) i can't i can't do a good sean connery can can he do other accents I, I feel like he can, I don't think right? I've ever heard it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it would definitely test him as an actor, but I can kind of see that. Yeah. Keep in mind, I'm not saying Sean Connery is a bad actor. I just I think it's similar to the Michelle Pfeiffer Meg Ryan problem where he's just so Sean Connery and everything. I don't think he could. Right. Vanish into this character that needs to be very. He's less of a character actor than Anthony Hopkins can be. Right. Now, there were other actors who I think are more in the character actor mold who were also considered uh, Al Pacino, De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Derek Jacobi, which would have been interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the one from this list who I actually do think maybe could have done as good a job, Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, yeah. He would have been a little young at the time, though. Yeah, but could knowing what we know about yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis and his method, could you imagine how fucking terrifying he yeah. would have been on set? I get he can do anything. So <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, I, I, he's that would be amazing. Um, but the other like De Niro, Pacino, there's also there's something like too sort of stereotypically masculine about them that I think oh. doesn't actually work for the character. I like that observation. 
I, I feel like you need somebody who doesn't fit that, you know, testosterone uh, sort of mold. Like, yeah, well, part, part uh, of his mystique is he's a, you know, he's a well-educated, somewhat like not he's metrosexual. Yeah, like I, he's obviously not physically weak because he can kill people with his bare hands and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there's there's still that sense when you look at him, something disarming. Yeah. I don't know. Can we start talking about the sequel? Let's circle back to the sequel because okay. I want to finish up talking about the other actors who I marked off just real quick. So okay. let's uh, let's talk about Ted Levine who played Buffalo Bill. Oh, dude, so that, good, right? So good. I he was amazing. That voice is that. Yeah, I, I can't think of it. Uh, I don't know him from any other movies, so I don't know if that actually is his voice or if that was him playing the role. But it worked just like beautifully. Yeah, he's so frightening. That scene where he's um it's screaming puts, along with the girl. It puts the lotion in the basket. Yeah, so uh we're gonna talk about other quotes from this movie. Had you heard that one? No. Really? It puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Yeah. <laughs> uh I can't that's a little bit of a bane quality to it, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh so you'd never heard that quote though? Because no, that's been- a key when people are playing sort of a, a serial killery role, occasionally they'll drop that, you know? No, I've never heard it. It puts the lotion on its skin. <laughs> Put the lotion in the fucking basket. Yes, yes, she'll get the hose again. Yes, precious. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that fucking dog. I, I had a roommate who had that exact dog. Oh, man. I know. Um, it really made me wonder what he was planning. Yeah, you know, uh, the dog Darla... Uh, I don't know what other roles she's played, but I thought that was just a spellbinding performance by her. Well, she's no Bart the Bear, but she's okay. Right. I do want to say, too, in that one scene, the would you fuck me scene, uh, I, I, I thought about how he's playing this role in a way where if he was a female actor, they would describe it as fearless. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. I know what you're um, saying. Well, all right, and let's uh, finish up just mentioning Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford. Yeah, I mean, the character didn't really do much for me. Uh, The acting I thought was fine, but his role in the plot just seemed kind of fulfilling a purpose of, of, like, being the, you know, the mentor and the, the directing of her actions, but not really mattering. Right, and it's also a bit of a bland part compared to all yeah. of these other incredibly juicy roles around him. Right. But- that be I did just want to mention though because I really like Scott Glenn. What else he's, has uh, he done? He's in Hunt for Red October. Okay. He's the American sub captain, and he's also Stick in the Daredevil TV show on Netflix. Oh, so I I've never watched Daredevil. I take that back. I watched the like few. The first, you know, couple of episodes of season one, and I didn't like it, so I never finished. You make me sick. I thought it was kind of campy. Okay, so let's start talking about the plot of this movie, Wait, shall we? So before we go any further, I just yep. wanted to tell you that I can smell your cunt. Oh my god. Well, so long as you don't do anything else that Migs gets up to, I think we'll be okay. 
Fortunately, we're separated by the internet. <laughs> um, which is really saying something that the odor is traveling so far. Yeah, well, you also notice that uh, Hannibal Lecter has an absolutely superhuman sense of smell himself. Right, yeah, where he can name the, the cream that she uses and the perfume and can tell that she's not wearing it today, but she's worn it in the past. What the hell? Yeah, I don't know. I think you have to kind of have you know somewhat superhuman qualities to do the things that he does yeah he's he's vaguely superhuman in this movie it it gets to be too much later but in this one i i think it still stays within the realm of being just just kind of superhuman enough that you can still buy it as able to exist in the real world yeah yeah i agree so as part of our plot discussion, I like touching back on some of the predictions that you made. So let's talk about some of them. Uh, you were right, Ian. It has the same director as Philadelphia. <laughs> and you were right that it has Anthony Hopkins in it as a doctor something. Thank he, you. He was a doctor. I, I like to think that I'm, you know, I'm just really intuitive when it comes to these sorts of things. And you're a cultured guy. I am. Uh, so is so was Dr. Lecter, as you expected. He was well-educated and a professor and a psychiatrist. And he eats people. <laughs> That's like the, the handful of things that everybody knows. Who's never seen yeah. Would you say, though, that he is a serial killer per se? Yeah, I would now. <laughs> okay. Well, it, the... The thing that I was, I wasn't surprised because I knew I didn't know anything having never seen it, but I did think the the movie was going to be more about him still being active and him getting caught. I didn't think right, it was going right. to be this separate murderer and he's already been in jail for eight years. Yeah. Well, th that kind of loops into your predictions for Jodie Foster. So you were, you were sort of right on the fringes of what her role was but her role is more in the middle of your two predictions so you said that she's either the detective after him or one of his students right. and she's kind of in the middle of that right yeah, she's she's a student detective who's not after him right <laughs> yeah so That's so i i sort of feel like you kind of got that one sort of right yeah i th i would say i did like the young upstart you know I mean, you were wrong, but you did get on either side of the bullseye. Right. So, like, but in terms of being wrong, I was kind of right. All right. Whatever you got to tell yourself, Ian. You were sort of right and sort of wrong that Anthony Hopkins was the bad guy. Right. He wasn't the bad guy. No, he, he was, was not. a bad guy. Yeah. I, I had no idea that there was a separate murderer in the movie. Hmm. Interesting. Because, you know, uh, as famous as Hannibal Lecter is, uh, Buffalo Bill is also pretty famous. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know of his character at all. In fact, uh, Ian, in one of our fantasy football leagues, we had one year where we considered everyone naming their team after a, like, coming up with a serial killery name for your team. And someone in our league, Michael was like, oh, I could name my team the Buffalo Bills. And they were all like, that's a real team, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Well, anyway, as far as what does the bad guy want or what does uh, Hannibal Lecter want, it wasn't that he got too far into an experiment. But there, you know, you talked about there maybe being a Joker Harley situation with him and Clarice. Yeah. It's not exactly that. No. But there is a bit of a mentor-mentee relationship. 
Yeah, there seems to be a mutual respect between the two. Yeah, and not to be too spoilery, but it's possible that in one of the later movies it grows more in that direction. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I started watching the first fifteen minutes of Hannibal, the movie. No, yeah, the movie. Uh, don't it. Uh, the first fifteen minutes were not good. No, what uh, what we will talk about though is at the television show Hannibal. Oh lordy, Mwah. but we'll get to that. You were right about that image, the Mister Burns on the dolly image. Yeah, <laughs> was that close to what you were expecting? Yeah, and. You know, the movie's supposed to be modern for the time, I, I as I understand. And yeah. there's just something, like, really primitive about that setup that is almost kind of brings it into, like, a science fiction-y type uh, uh, imagery. The movie's very early 90s, isn't it? Yeah, and it makes me feel really old to, like, look at that film and, like, how dated it feels. But yet still recognize it as familiar. Yeah. Um, so I had a little bit of a, a crisis about growing older last night when I was watching it. Yeah, you weren't the only one. Um, the thing I always notice with uh, time periods and especially late 80s, early 90s movies, I, the first scene where one occurred, I was like, boxy cars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost as if like a 1970s movie feels the same to me as a 1990s movie now, and I'm unhappy yeah, and about that. It, it's actually I've talked about this in other podcasts, but there was an article that was written about how um, you can watch a movie from basically any era, and most things will, apart from the fashion, but like the street, like a building or a neighborhood will look more or less the same, but the real indicator of when something is taking place is to look at the cars. Right. I agree there's, with there's that. a I've dramatic shift. That. Uh, yeah, going from boxy to sleek. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a few other your predictions. You got the fava bean quote correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the, the dolly scene. He wasn't in court. It wasn't a climactic confession. In fact, he was uh, talking to a U.S. senator. Yeah. That, yeah. that I didn't see coming yeah you expected that there would be some other character someone who you weren't accounting for who might be like the monkey wrench in a good versus evil conflict Mm -hmm. and i that was right i'm gonna give myself that one there was a third character but it's almost like the third character was buffalo bill and he was the evil and hannibal lecter is the monkey wrench yes because he's the more morally gray one I don't think he's morally gray, Dave. I think he's pretty awful. (laughs) I just think his role in the plot served a purpose that, you know, some good could be found in it. But fine. Fine. I'm going to quote that morally gray. Okay, done. Tweeted. (laughs) So the movie opens and, um, we get uh, we get Jodie Foster running the forest, and the thing that I really, really noticed this time watching about it is, as we sort of alluded to when talking about her as an actress, she's so small yeah. and f- physically at least vulnerable seeming. Yeah, it's like there. Yeah, go ahead. She, 
you know, I think that adds to the drama of the movie, right? You know. Oh, absolutely. There, she's not risking anything if she's this big and imposing, strong figure physically. Right. Yeah. Well, and and in terms of big and and imposing, uh, that elevator shot at the beginning where she gets in in the gray sweater and all the dudes around her and the red shirts and they're just towering over her. Right. First of all, it's an amazing shot both visually and in terms of what it conveys in terms of information about the character and her situation. It also, just in my mind, I was like, how fucking short is Jodie Foster? Let's look it up. Yeah, look it up, please, because I was like, is she, like, shorter than me? She, like, came up to those dudes' waists. She's five foot three. Wow. Wow. She's, All right. she's an inch taller than my wife. And your wife is short. Yeah. It also goes to another thing about this movie, which I think is a more subtle thread, but is definitely present, which is that there's a bit of a misogyny angle to a lot of what happens. Yeah. I mean, I, go, I, yeah, I agree. Go, go I agree with that. Um, but I also feel like it existed, but wasn't really dwelled upon that much. They were um, not heavy-handed about it. Yeah, and I think in some ways that made it more effective. Oh, I agree. I, I always feel like those themes are handled better and more effectively when they're not pounding you over the head. Yeah, exactly. You know? The part where where she told Crawford that, you know, it matters. You know? And that, yeah, yeah, his behavior is, you know, people take their cues from him. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I thought she got the point across perfectly and i'm sure especially at the time you know the fbi was very much like that yeah but it's also not just the fbi did you notice how it's almost in the background but it's just you especially notice it once you know it's there all these scenes where she's just going from one place to another there'll be a man who kind of ogles her or like checks her out yeah and and then everywhere she goes, whenever she meets a new person, they always start hitting on her. Yes. Yeah, I did and notice it, that. And then Hannibal mentions that, that, uh, you know, you must feel eyes looking over your body all the time or whatever it is he said. Yeah, um, well, you know, it, it's interesting and notable that the only two men who don't hit on her are the two mentors, Crawford and uh, Hannibal Lecter. That's true. Yeah. I mean, Hannibal sexualizes her, but that's in a deliberate, like, psychological ploy, you know? Right. I'd agree. I don't think he, like, I don't think he covets her. Right. Or at least not in not, that way. Not sexually. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I think that's a very strong, subtle theme running through this whole thing. And, of course, you get it, too, with, you know, Buffalo Bill and the fact that he's committing horrific acts of violence on women. Yeah. That, yeah. The the making of a skin suit oh yeah well we'll we'll get to that when we get to that part of the plot uh first though i want to talk about how we get the very first meeting between starling and hannibal lecter so clary starling is a trainee with the fbi and jack crawford the head of the behavioral science unit is chasing this serial killer buffalo bill they can't seem to catch him so he sends this trainee to talk to Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist and potential profiler, but he's in prison because he's also a nutty serial killer who eats people. 
and Crawford thinks that Starling might be able to get him to help. So she goes to the psychiatric hospital where he is being imprisoned, and we get this incredibly famous first scene where she meets him in his confinement. What did you think of this scene? The whole, the build-up to her first meeting with him when Dr. Chilton mm-hmm. is explaining the rules about it and the way, it, like, that whole hall of psychopaths looked. Right. So, what did, what did you think? Yeah, it's it's a very, you know, intimidating setup. And then it builds and builds and gets more threatening. And then she finally sees him and he's just like, good morning. <laughs> yeah it's not the build-up is so intense yeah. and like descending into the bowels of this prison it's like you go from the clean white prison deeper and deeper underground until it's just this dank right you know you're descending into hell yeah basically. i was just about to say the same thing it was a very clear uh sort of you know going from earth to hell sort of right and setup. he's the last the last cell so he's in the deepest part of the pit right, right. the seventh and, ring Right. And, and, um, you know, everything about it just looks so distinct. Like the, the way the glass is what separates them instead of bars. Right. And he's just standing there in the middle of this space, arms at his side, totally still, but so courteous. Shirt tucked in. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. And it sets the standard both for, not just the portrayal of scary monsters, like what uh, Anthony Hopkins is doing, but also the portrayal of scary monster prison. Yeah. You know? It was right out of the handbook. I mean, it creates the handbook. Right. One thing, too, that I feel like we should point out is that for as famous as Hannibal Lecter is, were you surprised that he's basically barely in this movie? Uh, Yeah. You know, I thought he, I mean, he is central to the plot. But I thought the movie was going to be, well, I thought the movie was going to be about Jodie Foster's character, but I thought, you know, in second place would be him. It would go back and forth between the two. Yeah, I was surprised how much was focused on the Memphis Police Department for, for one. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, we'll get to that part, I know, but yeah. like, it seemed to try to introduce them as characters that we care about at one point. And that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, hmm. And there was more. Fo- I didn't know about Buffalo Bill at all. So that surprised me that it was about him a, yeah. a lot more than it was about. Well, it wasn't about him more than Hannibal, but there was more about him than I expected. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he's he's not a big part of the film. But anyway, so we get our first one on one meeting and there's only four in the in the whole movie. But this first one is such a masterclass of acting and directing. I, I've seen like several like, you know, directorial breakdowns of the scene and, you know, all that. But even even apart from that, like academic analysis, just as a movie watcher, it's so thrilling. Yeah, no, I I had every intention uh, last night when I when, when I was watching it of watching half of it and then going to bed. But I had to stay up and watch the rest. Um, nice. And I think that first scene is part of what sucked me in. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Um, this is also, I think, a good uh, case in point of the good use of those close-ups we were talking about. Uh, there, there are a lot of close-ups in the scene of the two of their faces. He, he is so 
big in the frame, his proximity is very unnerving. Like, not just his proximity to her, but his proximity to you as the viewer. It's almost like he is right in your face. Yeah, uh, that wasn't something I picked up on, but I see what you mean. What I like about this scene is the fact that he comes at her really, really hard, and she bends, you know, he it has an effect on her, but she doesn't crack. No. And, and I think, A, that's what makes her awesome as a heroine, and B, that's got to be what makes her so interesting to him, too, right? Right. Yeah, d- despite all the vulnerabilities that we discussed, she kind of holds her own against him. Yeah, I, I would even say that she she loses, you know, like she doesn't even hold her own really, but she puts up a good enough showing. Yeah, well, yeah. I think he even says that in in the first scene, like, oh, no, no, you're doing just fine. But when he when she hands him the questionnaire. Oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, you finally made a mistake with that sloppy segue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, still, when he when he attacks her, it clearly she feels it, but she doesn't let it, you know, destroy her in the moment, which is way to go, Clarice. Right. So then she starts to leave and um, this dude throws some cum at her. Was that what that was? Yes. Huh. What did you think it was? I couldn't tell. I thought it might have been like him biting off a piece of his like a finger or something. I couldn't really. The first time I saw this, I also didn't realize what it was. It's just because of how my, the age I was at when I saw it. I was probably way too young to be watching this movie. But uh, it's much, much, much clearer to me now as an adult. But yeah, he, he throws cum at her and it gets in like her hair yeah. and on her body and it's disgusting. And um well, one that's fucking awful and also speaks a little bit more to that misogyny theme. Right. But two, it highlights a key thing about Hannibal Lecter's personality that I love, which is that he hates rudeness. Right. Yeah. The thing that really sets him off is discourtesy. He calls her back and he's like, well, that was discourteous and I hate discourtesy. So, of course, he has to kill that guy now. Yeah. And so can we talk about that? Um, Please. How does he kill him? He just talks to him and convinces him to kill himself? Yeah, he's such a good psychiatrist that just by talking to him overnight, he convinces him to kill himself. That is amazing. It's awesome, isn't it? And also, he does it by swallowing his own tongue. You can do that? I I, I think that when people have seizures, that happens from time to time. But ah. to... to suggest to someone to do that on purpose and have them actually go through with it that's mind control that's yeah and and way to establish the bona fides of your villain too right (laughs) you it definitely is an important part of his character that he's the greatest psychiatrist of all time yeah i mean we see how quickly he breaks down clary starling just on like giving her a look and a sniff right right yeah it yeah I was really uh, impressed with that. And now that I know that uh, Migs threw cum at her, I'm actually really happy that he did that. Yeah, no, it's he got what he deserved. Yeah. He was rude. And that, uh, that's kind of, as you would say, that that is one of the good traits that makes him morally gray. And I loved that. 
So it's like an extreme fundamentalist version of Dexter, where you don't kill serial killers, you kill people who are far less awful. Just But in a way, people. you sort of feel like they really have it coming. Yeah. How hard is it to just be You know, Mick's had it people? coming. Yeah. I mean, in a certain way, they deserve it more. Like, Dexter is killing people who have serious mental disorders that they can't control. People can choose to just not be dicks. So, in a way, Hannibal's the good guy here. See? He's morally gray. <laughs> Alright, so... He sends Clarice off to this storage unit where she might find a clue. And I want to single this scene out really quickly because it doesn't seem like that big of a scene. And yet I feel like it does so much work in terms of her character. So there's a storage unit where she thinks there might be something inside and she's there at night and she can't open the door because it's too heavy. And you know what that's getting across. She's weak, right? She's Mm -hmm. small. She's weak. Mm -hmm. She can't get it open. But she can't get it open, so she goes to her car, and she gets a jack Mm -hmm. to try and open it. So, you know, she might be weak, but she's resourceful. She's resourceful, she's gritty, she finds the right tools to do the job. She's determined. And, you know, she can only get it up a little bit off the ground, so she has to get on the ground and sort of slide into this dark room where she doesn't know where it is. And so that's two more things there. One, she's brave. She goes into this dark storage unit where anything could be in there all by herself and she's tenacious the fact that she can barely get it open and has to like can't get in but has to like crawl on the ground to get in yeah and it's a metaphor for how she deals with hannibal too like yeah she doesn't follow the protocol precisely of telling him about her personal life and you know other things that both chilton and crawford said uh told her not to do she kind of gets right in the middle and does exactly what she needs to do to get what she wants out of him. Yeah, she's got grit. Dare I say that she may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but she has the heart of an FBI agent. (laughs) Yes. So she goes into this storage unit and she finds a head in a jar. (laughs) Oh, delightful. And this sets up our second meeting with Hannibal Lecter, where she decides to talk about the head in the jar. I think this is also a moment where I want to mention that I just, I hate anagrams. Yeah, it is kind of like a very simple and easy way to show that someone's smart. Like, of course he has an anagram because he's a doctor. Did you forget? Yeah. Also, I'm bad at anagrams, so maybe there's an element of jealousy involved. But um, you you, uh, you notice in this second meeting already, it's already a little bit more friendly and intimate. Yes. She's not in a chair. She's sitting on the floor. Right. You know, and he gives her the towels and she's kind of like drying off while talking to him. Right. So she went straight there after, after going to the storage locker, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And you you notice that uh, Dr. Chilton is torturing him by making him listen to gospel TV. Yeah. That does sound hellish. That's fucked up. At the end of this conversation, Hannibal Lecter offers to help them catch Buffalo Bill, which is our segue to meeting Buffalo Bill. 
the next Would... scene is the is the one the where where he kidnaps her. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty freaky. First of all, that night vision is very creepy. Yeah. And then the way he captures her, just to lay it out, is Buffalo Bill is stalking women and kidnapping them. And what he does is he pretends to be struggling to get a couch into his van, and he gets her to offer to help put it in the van, and then he knocks her out and drives away. Yeah, which was a really effective way of kidnapping someone, actually. Uh, yeah, I feel. although I think this must have been happening before we had all that stranger danger yeah. training. That we started having? You know, in the good old days, you could just pick up a hitchhiker and kill them. But now, like, no one hitchhikes anymore. It's all ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, a couple people ruined the fun for everybody else. Ugh, bullshit. <laughs> I, I do think that her big mistake was not immediately noticing that the dude has a molester van. <laughs> well, see, that's the that's the problem with it being 1991 is that's just what vans were there was like that wasn't a molester van at the time it's it's a giant full van with no windows i wouldn't even go near one of those on the street as as like a pedestrian i just know to stay away it's like not touching a brightly colored frog right like you know that now though but that that's something that i don't think that's instinctual true true we had to learn So in a way, he was doing everyone a service by teaching people about molester vans. Yeah, yeah, this movie's almost like a a PSA. So if you think about it, Buffalo Bill was also morally gray. (laughs) Sure. Sure, Ian. So now we get uh, the part where they found one of the bodies, right? And uh, Clarice Starling and Jack Crawford fly out to uh, check the body out. Mm -hmm. And you get another instance of these uh, straight on camera shots where Jodie Foster. So Jack Crawford leaves Jodie Foster alone with some other cops for a little while. And it's this effective use of that Jodie Foster and the cops looking straight into the camera because it really puts you in her headspace. You get all of these, you know, the camera circles. And so you're basically, you have Jodie Foster's POV and all these cops, they're, it's tilted up, so you get that they're looming over her, and they're looking straight back at her, and it sort of circles around, so she's in the center of their attention, and it's very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And it makes you very uncomfortable. It's, it's yeah, good work. And, and at the, uh, not to get ahead, but at the end of the movie, it's the opposite, right? Buffalo Bill is circling her. Oh, yes. That's a good point. She, I didn't even she, notice that. You know, it, it's from his perspective. And she, you know, he's the earth. She's the sun. Whereas in that scene, you know, it's we have from, the sun POV. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. But uh, so we get the examination of the body, which, um, well, number one, they notice that she has some broken fingernails, which is something that'll come back later rather horribly. Yes. And they discover the moth in the throat, which yeah. is what gives us the image from the poster. Uh, I forgot to ask in part one, were you familiar with that poster image? Uh, when I, It looked familiar when I saw it, but if you had asked me before, I wouldn't have been able to recall. Okay. Well, yeah, so uh, they, they find this chrysalis for a moth in her throat, which I think is a very interesting calling card for one. But or um, pupa. Yes. And that gives Clarice her excuse to go visit the bug nerds. 
Oh man, they see that was one of the things that just struck me as really campy too. Is these were like straight out of central casting nerds. They sure were, including the weird faced guy. Yeah, the kind of not really cross eyed, but kind of cross eyed. There's something going on with his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And he hits on her too, by the way. Right. Do you ever go out for cheeseburgers and beer? I mean, to be fair, she's much kind of nicer and gentler with him because he's, I think, a little bit more harmless. Yeah. You know, he's a lot more harmless. And he's, I mean, I mean, again, he's hitting on her in a situation where maybe it's not appropriate. But I think he's his come on is a little nicer than some of the other ones she gets. He's not as sleazy as Chilton anyway. No, no, I would agree. Yeah. And so anyway, this is where we discover the death's head moth. Which number one cool name number two cool moth? Yeah, I and I think I agree with you that as far as serial killer calling cards go, it's a really interesting one. Yeah. So after this scene where they discover the Death's Head moth, we make another discovery, which is that the most recent kidnappee, the girl, is the daughter of a U.S. senator, and I just could you imagine? the utter shitstorm that would come down if the daughter of a U.S. senator was kidnapped by a serial killer. Yeah, I mean, CNN talked about the missing Malaysian flight for about five months straight of solid coverage. It would be like three years if if this happened in real life. Well, but not only that, in this instance, we there's a ticking clock. They know he only keeps them alive for, what, uh, the three days or something like that? So right. it would just be wall-to-wall coverage, probably with, like, a, 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 a incredibly crass death clock or something like that, you know? Right, yeah, Wolf Blitzer would be up for 72 hours straight. Oh, my just God. constantly covering it. And then, of course, you know that uh, the senator's handling of the situation would be part of their re-election campaign. Right. It's like, oh, my God, he or she, like, cried or, like, you know, tried negotiating with this serial killer or, you know, negotiating with terrorists or they were so strong. Like, I just imagine how the media landscape of today would just make it such a disgusting circus. Yeah, like, you really saw her strength, and she has the strength to stand up to the Republicans, or, or something like that. Well, I think in this instance, uh, the senator is a Republican. No, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, she's side. Southern, so I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. All right, so this is where we now, we get our third meeting between our two heroes. <laughs> and um, this is where we get the, uh, this is another quote that maybe you might have heard, the, uh, Quid pro quo, Clarice. No, I, I didn't hear that before. Okay. That wasn't well, something I knew. E- even without that specific quote, I think in this scene, what is very clear, apart from any specific lines, this specific questioning style or like the way the patter works between them, I think, is mm-hmm. often parodied in other media. You know, the way he's questioning her. Do, yeah. do you feel like you recognized that? Um, I, I think that's a familiar, like, sort of structure to, to dialogue. Well, maybe, but it's, it's like, tell me more, Clarice. Tell me about the lambs. Were they, were they crying, Clarice? Were they crying in your dream? Tell me about why they were crying, Clarice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um. Did he rape you? Did this farmer molest you in the night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Um, 
Yeah, it's like not even about what he says a... and just sort of how he sounds saying it. Uh, sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that comes from a Harold Pinter play uh, huh. where there's this, I forget the details now, but there's a scene very similar where these people are being interrogated and that that structure is, is put into place and it's yeah uh isn't isn't the birthday party kind of like that yeah that's the one i'm thinking of yeah and and that's another one too where actually it's sort of exactly what i just said where the actual words that are being said are sort of nonsense it's less about the specifics of the questioning and more about the patter the the rhythm of the dialogue right the the sort of intensity the pattern of the pressure that is put on the person you're speaking to yeah, yeah. And I mean, you would have to assume that Anthony Hopkins is familiar with Harold Pinter. Yes. <laughs> so that is what a great observation, Ian. Well done. I, that's, I'm sure he drew inspiration from from that. And I think, you know, I mean, unless I'm mistaken, mistaken, I think the birthday party is what kind of set that up as a standard in drama. Like that exists in a lot of different films and tv shows interesting interesting well i could be wrong so if if you do research afterwards and it turns out i'm wrong just edit that out okay yeah i'll i'll fix it i'll i'll cut that in post don't worry i won't let you sound like an idiot okay oh nothing's getting cut um (laughs) all right so we find out that the symbolism of the moth is that it represents change and transition right which is pretty cool uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Buffalo Bill and transitioning a little later. But in the meantime, I want to mention that uh, in this next scene, we get to see a much fuller view of Buffalo Bill's very serial killery basement. Yeah. Do you think that's why he bought the house? Yeah. Well, because, all right, so you get the pit, right? We finally get our full view of the pit that he's keeping her in. That has why to have been there originally, there? right? My guess is that it's an old house that's sort of, like, built on top of a previous, like, older house, like a settler house that had a well at the bottom, and the well is done, but there's still the bones of the well. Right? That has to be what it- he couldn't have built that himself. I guess so, but still, why is that there? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. And also, we find out that he killed, like- this is someone else's house, this woman's house, where he killed her and took her over. So is it just, like, a matter of incredibly convenient happenstance that she had a pit for prisoners in her basement? Was right. she a serial killer that he just, like, took over her business? Is, or was it a situation of opportunity where he was fine and then he thought, well, this house is too serial killery. I, I have to It would be a shame to let life. it go to waste. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh my god, it is such a, like, he has the molester van, he has the the serial killer way of talking, yeah. and he's got the basement, he has, like, all the parts, it's sort of like, he must have took taken a look at his life and been like, it's almost like fate is telling me what I have to be. Right, and so, where does this sit in, like, in the, in the canon of serial killery dramas it's near the top right so it's number is re- one is, is recognizing that as being very serial killery does that all come from this movie and it's not that me seeing it now makes it feel like it's 
sort of out of the serial killer handbook or you didn't <laughs> write the serial killer handbook to begin with i mean i think what they were doing was they took inspiration from real dudes but that this movie brought it to the more broader culture at large yeah yeah and i, I just uh that pit is so horrible uh not to get back on the simpsons but i every time i saw her in the pit i kept on thinking of timmy o'toole <laughs> sting's gonna come bursting through the side any moment <laughs> right yeah yeah but also uh this is a moment where we get the callback to the nails mm-hmm. that's yeah. i mean that's going above and beyond directoring wise like you know you, we've got this pit and what a great piece of art design but then the idea to have the the broken nails in the wall and the bloody streaks from her clawing at the walls yeah and, holy uh, shit i don't know her name but the actress who played Catherine, she did a phenomenal i know some people might say that oh she was just screaming you know but i you really got the sense that she saw what she saw realized what it was and was legitimately horrified i thought that was a really good reaction on her part totally agree totally agree because there's i mean she a lot of her uh lines for lack of a better word are screaming but there's a lot of gradations of the type of screaming she's doing there's like the hello where are you like screaming and then there's that like horror like realization scream that you're talking about um and i was going to mention it later but she does have a really good line reading later on when she finally has precious down with her and um when buffalo bill is looking for uh the dog she yells out down here you sack of shit <laughs> and it's like it's it's a really good take i i liked it a lot i had to write it down right yeah um why we're talking can we just mention in general favorite lines in the movie or should i wait for that portion no we can plot? do it now um because there's there's other famous lines that i wanted to run past you so this is you know i think this is as good a moment as any hit me with some of your so, favorites no so hands down my favorite uh, not only my favorite line, my favorite moment of the entire movie was uh, one more thing. Love the suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring that up later. But um, I I like the the final line of the movie, which is um, I'm about to have an old friend for dinner. Yeah, <laughs> not over for dinner. No, no, no. Four. Yeah. 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 All right, well, um, I, you know, given what you just said, this is actually the next scene that we have, which is the meeting in Memphis where uh, Hannibal has gamed the system and gotten himself flown out to Memphis on his Mr. Burns dolly with his mask. Very famous image, him in that mask. Mm-hmm. And he has the whole scene with the senator where he's just fucking with her the whole time. Right. Tell me, senator, did you breastfeed her? Yeah. Did your nipples get when raw? She, when she's lying on the slab, where will it tickle you? Oh my god, such a dick. Yeah. <laughs> get it's, this monster away from me. I uh, mean, he send really... Send back to Baltimore, wherever it was. Yeah, well, I mean, she's... It, 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 it's such a powerless moment for her, though. She she says it. It's, it's a good line reading here, too, where... You know, she ostensibly is c- giving a command to have him taken away, but in her voice, you can just feel the the impotence there, mm-hmm. and sort of hopelessness. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a well done moment on her part, uh, whoever that actress is. 
And then, of course, yes, that fantastic line. By the way, love the suit. <laughs> really, really fucking good. And he would know, right? He's a very cultured man. Yeah, of course. He to- he, pay- he pays for Cinemax. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he loves Cinemax, Ian. To be honest, though, it is the early 90s, so I find it hard to believe that there are any suits that one could love back then. Right. He's just really big into shoulder pads. Oh, God. Uh, Jodie Foster does have the shoulder pads, but maybe because she has such tiny sizes, they don't uh, yeah. stick out so horribly. Anyway. By the way, I was oh, yeah. just uh, Googling some stuff about Jodie Foster, and despite her age, she's still very, very attractive. Jodie Foster has aged very well. She's held up almost in that Patrick Stewart-like way, where yeah. she seems kind of ageless through the years. She got to a point and then just plateaued. I mean, I, I feel like saying plateaued gives it a negative connotation, but yes. No, 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 in a good way. She held She held firm. I don't know what her regimen is, but it's working. Yeah. Well, so, after that wonderful kiss-off line, we get our fourth and final meeting between our two heroes in memphis much nicer digs for hannibal oh yeah um kind of weird how they in the county courthouse they just or was it the courthouse it looks almost like a museum to me yeah they just set up this cubicle uh prison randomly i guess i i don't know I mean, because you sort of like you want to have this offset where people can be surrounding it, I guess. Yeah, it it just I don't know. No. It was very out of place, but <laughs> I think it lended itself to the sort of supernatural or, you know, almost science fiction like quality to the film, though. It, it, it takes this room and makes it feel very uncanny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I think was deliberate. Not, oh, sure. Not like incompetence oh no not at all i think if there's anything that we've noticed about the directing of this film is that there are a lot of very clever deliberate directorial choices that even if you don't notice them consciously work on a subconscious level yeah another tiny thing that i just noticed in the scene did did it stand out to you how fucking pale jodie foster is it didn't stand out to me in this scene but it was something i noticed earlier on I think it stands out to me more in this scene because, like, in the original prison, it's it's very gray and blue, whereas this prison, it's much warmer colors, so the pale skin tone stands out against the background more. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can see that, but, you know. Yeah. So, uh, this is the scene where she's finally just begging him to help her figure out who this dude is, and, uh, number one, he drops a nice little Marcus Aurelius reference. I noticed that. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor, and I am personally a big fan of Roman history, uh, but he was well known as being kind of the philosopher emperor. So he has all these, he has a book called Meditations, which is full of kind of philosophical quotes, one of which Hannibal Lecter references here, which is talking about how you have to consider something by going to its nature, right? And what is Buffalo Bill's nature? Mm-hmm. What is it, Ian? He covets? He covets. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so brilliant. And then, of course, this is the scene where we get the conversation about the lambs. Did you ever wonder why this movie was called The Silence of the Lambs? I did, and so this is why. Um, But I thought that was kind of a 
you know, there could be no other title to this movie knowing that story. Like, it, it was such a well-titled film. Agreed. Yeah, Buffalo Bill's wacky adventures in uh, stitching just doesn't have the same <laughs> same ring to it. It's also an incredibly well-given monologue on Judy Foster's part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you really kind of sense the, the sort of horror of a child. You know, oh, yeah. Being yeah. confronted with all these cute, like, adorable baby animals about to die. And yeah. I guess they do actually scream and sound like children when when they're in that situation. That's a oh. real thing. Yeah, uh, pigs also, I'm told, sound uh, terrifyingly human when they're about to be killed. Yeah. I, I, so. it, it's just a really disturbing image. And yeah, so. well, I'm not a vegetarian, but I do try not to eat pork for that reason. Anywho, uh, another thing I just want to mention is that at the end of this scene, when she's leaving, Hannibal touches her. He just brushes her. Yeah, yeah, I noticed It's the that. only physical contact, yeah. And um, this is, again, a moment where, as the series goes on, it sort of pitches it a little bit more as, like, a love story, whereas I, I think here it's more just kind of about having a connection, and I prefer it that way. Yeah, I think so, too. I don't... Yeah. I not every relationship between two people like has to be romantic at some point. Right. And I feel like even like think about it from a more Hannibal Lecter perspective, that's almost sort of too crass. Yeah. A little, for the relationship to be right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's not how he thinks about, you know, his, his social interactions. So after this, uh, Hannibal Lecter escapes yeah that whole scene was um at first brutal? i was it was brutal but it was also really confusing the like down in the lobby when the cops were looking at the elevator go up and down do you understand how he escapes now that the full scene is you know played out and you've thought about it um i i'm guessing i there's something that i don't understand uh, okay well here's here's how he did it so earlier, uh, when Chilton was messing with him, he brought a pen into the cell. Yeah. And Hannibal Lecter got the pen, and he took it apart and used that to make a makeshift handcuff key. Yeah, got that part. The two cops come in to give him food. Yeah. He unlocks himself with a handcuff key. He kills one of the cop. Well, he beats one of the cops to death. And I have to say, the, the shot of him with the baton yeah. beating him to death, there's... There's such a weird gracefulness to it. Right. It goes back to the earlier part when he says uh, his his uh, heart rate didn't go above 85 when he was eating, yeah. like eating the tongue of that nurse when he was getting his EKG. Right. Right. Um, you could just see like the calmness and like sort of not matter of fact, but um, like it was almost not that exhilarating of a of an event for it's him. clinical yeah yeah although i do feel like he's he's taking enjoyment out of it the way he sort of like raises it up he i think he's relishing the moment right and it but it's almost like it calms him down instead of ah uh, yeah yeah good, speeding good him call. up and so what he does so he's killed the one then he grabs a knife and goes towards the other and we don't see what happens 
The right. other cops come in, and number one, we see that he's taken the dead cop, and uh, he's dressed the crime scene. He has him up in that incredibly striking angel mm-hmm. pose, which, I mean, it's so artistic. Yeah. it's He's an artistic killer. I know. it was. It's, a, it's really good work. <laughs> yeah. But it also serves an intellectual purpose in that it's it distracts everybody from what's really going on. You know, it, it calls all their attention to this incredibly striking vision so that they're not being as uh, they're they're not pl- paying close enough attention to what the real plan is, which is he took the cop who is still alive and took the knife and he carved that dude's fucking face off. Yeah. Then he switched their clothes and he put the dude's face on his face and he pretended to be that guy, whereas he put the other guy in his clothes and put him on top of the elevator, knowing that they'd discover it and be distracted trying to capture, quote-unquote, Hannibal Lecter, meanwhile taking him out in an ambulance. Right. I No, I got all that. Uh, it was this, the way the cops were sort of reacting to watching the dial on the elevator go up and down. It seemed like I didn't understand how they understood something was going on. Oh, yeah, I think it was about the only people who should be on those upper floors are him in his cell and the two cops guarding him. So when there was unusual activity on the elevator, it could only mean that something has gone wrong. Okay. Because yeah. that's the part it that should only, wasn't yeah. really clear. Yeah, it should only be going up to his floor and coming straight back down. And if it if it does anything that deviates from that at all, something has gone awry. Right. After Hannibal escapes, Clarice cracks the case. He covets. And what do you covet? What you see every day. All right. So she realizes that, first of all, she figures out which was the first victim. And then she realizes that he must have known his first victim personally because he coveted her. Yeah. He covets what he sees every day. Afterwards, Clarice cracks the rest of it, which is that she knows what Buffalo Bill is doing. He is making a woman suit. Which is why he is picking large women because they have more skin. Right. And and also he starves them a little bit to make the skin looser on the body so that he can remove it. So he's going to make a suit out of the skin of a woman to wear so that that's how he's going to turn into a woman since he's been denied uh, sex reassignment surgeries. Yes. It's a very uh, vulgar way to go about achieving that goal. Yeah, it is. We'll talk about that more in a little bit, but uh, it, it is. But, you know, he's an insane person, so the dude's a serial killer. He's not thinking the way a normal person should. So I, I shouldn't expect him to be reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't. Although he is a good tailor. Apparently. I mean, yeah. from... From my experience, human skin is really, really hard to work with. So yeah, you, have, yeah, yeah. you just have to be like an artist with it. We discover that in the meantime, the FBI has also cracked the case, although of course cracked it thanks to her. They tracked the moth and figured out who was importing the moth pupae and uh, pupa, pupae, anyway. And we, but the SWAT team goes to the wrong house and we get that pretty cool cross-cutting of the SWAT team yeah, gearing that up was and Clarice awesome. going. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, the SWAT team busts into the wrong house and then Cl- the Buffalo Bill opens the door to Clarice and you're just like, rut row. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. 
Yeah. I said rut row. Oh, well, but no, no, that, that, and that one totally got me too. Oh, I yeah? didn't see it coming. It just totally got me. I was like, oh, shit. Yep. It's just her alone against this giant guy who we've already seen is actually like pretty fucking jacked. Yeah. Like, he's in good shape. Yeah. It, it, the He does sort of have a bit of a feminine quality to him, though. Um, when he that scene where he uh, tucks his penis between his legs and is, mm-hmm. is posing like his body, like looked kind of womanly i think i see it i agree yeah Yeah. so you know all he needs now is the suit and he's like he's good to go he's he's ready to roll but i guess what we're saying is he barely needs the suit right yeah so and in the end he discovered he was what he needed the entire time oh the end (laughs) so she comes inside and i do have to say I mean, maybe she was distracted, but, like, this dude is sketchy as hell. Yeah, well, she seemed to pick up on that pretty quickly, I thought. Maybe, but, you know, she's she's saved by the moth. Like, it's not until, and by the way, most terrifying instance of a moth flying into a room in cinema history. Yeah, uh, clearly. But, but I also, I feel like, you know, she was looking, she was looking around the house, saw how, you know, the blinds were all in shambles. I think she knew something wasn't right as soon as she stepped in there. Maybe didn't know that, oh, this is actually the serial killer, but there was something, I thought her antenna went up. In the end, though, she does see the moth and pull her gun, and then we get the hunt throughout the house, and we get the the repetition of that creepy night vision again. Right. And that scene was, first of all, how many rooms are in that basement? I don't know. It is a a labyrinth down there. That was really, really awful. And is there two basements? I could. I, I feel like. I feel like he went down. She went down two levels for some reason. Yeah, there, there's like an under basement. Yeah. This is why I'm saying I feel like it, it's a house built on the remains of a previous house. Yeah. But anyways, that was really creepy and made me really afraid of basements. By the way, uh, I'm, rightly I'm so. recording this in a, in my basement. Yeah, and... I can see it over Skype and. To be honest, Ian, it looks distressingly close to what Buffalo Bill's basement looks like. See, I was going to say that I wish my basement was more serial killery. I don't see how it could be. No. So um, we do, uh, during this scene, also catch a brief glimpse of the woman's suit. Yeah, and that was fucked up. Ultimately, though, she wins. She kills the guy. Mm-hmm. Good for you, Clarice. Yeah. And, and uh, she's admitted to the FBI, and we get our final phone call. Yes. A, a courtesy call from Hannibal to Clarice, where he says, don't try to chase me. She says, I have to. And then he says, I'm going to have an old friend for dinner. And, and we see yeah. Dr. Chilton. Yeah. And I'm actually really happy about that. He deserves it. Yeah, because he has he's rude. Yeah. But also, he tells her that he has no... In- tension of like going after her either and you believe him yeah he he says the world is more interesting with you in it and i i feel like that was an honest sort of uh message and that's the end of our movie we we end on the happy ending of knowing that dr chilton is about to get eaten (laughs) i mean what did you think did you like it 
I yeah, I mean, I I liked it. I liked cool. it. It was it was engaging. I think it may have been built up more in my head and was it wasn't disappointing, but I think that it could never live up to the expectations that I had. Oh, that's that's a shame to hear. Uh, let's explore that a little more in a second, though. I just want to run through a couple of final facts about the movie. So how did the movie do? Ian, this movie had a budget of about $19 million. Do you want to take a guess on how much money it made at the box office? Uh, 130 More. So this movie wasn't a blockbuster right away. It was kind of a sleeper hit that built up gradually in a way that movies tend not to really do anymore sort of an outlier that way but it wound up making 272.7 million dollars wow yes and here's the really interesting thing it won the top five oscars that year so it won best adapted screenplay best actor best actress best director and best picture i didn't real. i knew it had won you know a couple oscars but i didn't realize it like crushed the oscars yeah it it was a a performance so dominant it has not happened since and indeed that is only the third time that that has happened the other two cases of the movie uh sweeping those top categories are a movie called it happened one night which i'm not familiar with no and one flew over the cuckoo's nest hmm uh, it's also it's also noteworthy for being uh, so far the only movie to win Best Picture that is considered to be a horror film. Yeah, well, I think it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning that I think horror films tend to also be bad movies independently of their genre. I, I disagree with you. I do think that there's plenty of schlock in the horror genre, but I don't think that necessarily makes it any different from any other genre. There's a lot of schlock in every genre. I ag- agreed. I just, I feel like um, the concentration or the per capita schlock in the horror genre is higher. I think also, though, you could kind of argue whether or not this is a horror film. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is it's not real. It, it, People consider this movie to be very scary, though. I mean, there... Did you find it scary? I didn't find it scary. I found it, you know, menacing. Unnerving? Yeah, but I wouldn't say scary. Anthony Hopkins won an Academy Award, and he won it with approximately 16 minutes of screen time. Yeah. Although the screen time was low, I mean... The movie is discussing him constantly. You know, yes, anytime he's not on screen, people should be asking, where's Hannibal? Right. But he, he does dominate the proceedings even when he's not there. It's true. Right. I just want to throw out a few comparisons to people who have won Oscars with the equivalent or less time on screen. So check it. Anne Hathaway won for Les Mis with 15 minutes. Was that supporting or was that? Uh, the... That has to have been supporting. Yeah. Because she's. Um... Fontaine, right? Yeah, she's Fontaine. Ingrid Bergman won for Murder on the Orient Express with 14 minutes of screen time. Hmm. Ruby D won supporting for American Gangster 
with 10 minutes. I don't even know who she is. Did you see American Gangster? No. Oh, okay. She's um, Denzel's mom. Judy Dench, I think you will recall, won for playing Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love in oh. only eight minutes. Right. Yes. I remember that. Viola Davis also did it in only eight minutes in Doubt. Viola Davis was in Doubt? For eight minutes. I don't even recall her being in that movie. I didn't see it. Um, I just went off a list of people who won Oscars with very little time. Let me give you the uh, the queen of them all, though. An actress named Hermione Badley <laughs> won an Oscar, which I, it must have been supporting, for a movie called Room at the Top in 1958 with two minutes and 20 seconds of screen time. That has, well, I think you have to put supporting and, and lead in different categories here. I guess, but... Um, but yeah, that's ridiculous. The, the thing is, I mean, Anthony Hopkins won lead. Yeah, I know. That, that's what I, I, I'm saying. I, oh, I, I see. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, if it was supporting, I guess I wouldn't, it wouldn't be remarkable, really. But I think winning in under three minutes is pretty fucking remarkable. Yeah, I guess so. Gonna have to see that movie. God damn. Yeah. What does she do in those <laughs> two and a half minutes? She, I don't know. She literally transforms, I guess. <laughs> she wears a man suit. Um, as far as the way this movie is thought of, it has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And here are a few critic reactions. So on the plus side, there's Chris Cabin writing for filmcritic.com. He says, It's by no mistake that Silence of the Lambs is still considered one of the most important modern thrillers of all time. The reason, in simple terms, is that no movie looks or feels like Demi's movie. Yeah, I would agree that no movie looks or feels like this. Even when I, like, I only watched 15 minutes of it, of the sequel, you could, it was quite clearly a different movie. Agreed. And again, I want to hit that there's nothing about it that's like, it's not flashy, I, I guess, except for those close ups. Yeah. There's nothing about it that I think I could specifically point to. Yeah. And yet there's something about it that is so unique. It's just distinctly itself. Yes. I, I don't yeah. know any other way to put it. Yeah. Then Roger Ebert also like this. And this is kind of a long quote, but I want to read the whole thing because it's really well written. Unsurprisingly. It has been a good long while since I have felt the presence of evil so manifestly demonstrated as in the first appearance of Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs. He stands perfectly still in the middle of his cell floor, arms at his sides, and we sense instantly that he is not standing at attention, he is standing at rest, like a savage animal confident of the brutality coiled up inside him. His speaking voice has the precision of a man so arrogant he can barely be bothered to address the sloppy intelligence of the ordinary person. The effect of this scene is so powerful that it underlies all the rest of the movie, lending terror to scenes that do not even involve him. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, what... it's it's kind of exactly what we just said, right? right? So Ebert is the man for saying it better than anybody else could possibly say it. Yeah, as he often did. On the other hand, uh, Siskel did not like this movie. Siskel called this movie a case of much ado about nothing. He said that 
Demi superheats the silence of the lambs to the point of silliness. And he also criticized the movie for romanticizing the dark side. So I think he's touching upon the sort of thing that why I don't think it was as good as I was expecting it to be. So I was expecting it to be, you know, flawless or near flawless. But there is just enough sort of campy, silly, you know, sort of on the nose qualities that give it just enough flaws to be not quite up there with some of the best movies ever to me i i I don't agree with you but i'm not gonna be like i think that's a totally a wildly off base thing to say yeah so like you know the the part of it was the the mouth the the close-up of the mouth the 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 almost campiness of Hannibal Lecter almost yeah the sort of how his his like mouthpiece and Dolly and that cell in the courthouse were sort of you know not in the same reality as the rest of the movie almost I mean I think it's also fair to say that we sort of agree with Siskel and that it kind of makes him into a bit of a hero. Yeah, but I don't think that is a flaw. I think that's a good thing. Me too. Um, I think that makes it more interesting. This movie has also come in for some criticism from the LGBT community, uh, and that's for its portrayal of Buffalo Bill as a bisexual and or trans person who is also a serial killer. Right. Well, so uh, a couple things about that. I see, I see the point, and I, you know, I think that's a good, I agree, actually. But I also think that, you know, FBI agents at the time wouldn't have that same sensibility. So I'm not sure it's entirely out of place for their characters. That being said, I don't think they meant uh, the FBI agents to be that naive. I think it just was in the movie itself yeah i mean on a more meta level i think my reaction to that criticism would be that you know buffalo bill is not actually a trans person he's an insane person right and uh Um, hannibal says that himself yeah the movie does say that itself but it, it is important to be aware that like there's not a lot of trans representation in movies or other art especially back then And that means that any trans or, in this case, close to trans portrayals are weighted with a lot of responsibility. Yes. They they will affect people's perceptions. Yeah. And this movie was a huge fucking hit. So So, you can see why people were concerned. Yeah, I definitely do. And I think that kind of says what I was trying to say earlier, just, you know, in a way that's clear and... Yeah, no, I just, I did what you were trying to do, only better. There's nothing unusual about that. Sure. All right, so uh, a little bit about the legacy of this movie. So uh, Thomas Harris wrote a sequel to the book called Hannibal, which was then turned into a movie in 2001, directed by Ridley Scott, still not one of Scott's better films. Yeah. As you saw. Well, I'm going to watch the rest of it later tonight, probably, so I'll have more to say about it. And well, fair enough. Uh, there was a remake of Red Dragon made in 2002 by Brett Ratner. It's terrible. 
Although it's got, uh, check out the cast on Wikipedia. It's got one of the craziest casts just in terms of how stacked it is, especially compared to how awful the movie is. Okay. Then there was uh, the movie Hannibal Rising, both the novel and film. Uh, This was a prequel about Hannibal kind of becoming what he is. Awful. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is not in it. Uh, No one's in it. And then finally, there is the TV series Hannibal, which is one of the greatest artistic achievements of the 21st century. Huh. And that's some, that's a pretty big uh, promise there. I stand by it. I I feel absolutely no concern about overhyping it. Okay, it's that good. I'm gonna watch it, and if if you've overhyped it, I'll hate you forever. I don't sweat it, both because I know I'm right, and also I don't care what you think. <laughs> um i will say uh hannibal the tv show is even better now i would say for your having seen silence of the lambs given the way especially in its first season it it plays with the imagery of this movie so so keep that in mind it's it's about him before he gets caught yeah so uh that that prequel red dragon that's uh han- han- it explains how before he was caught he was actually working with the FBI as a profiler and the person he worked with most closely was this other profiler named Will Graham who over time realized what Hannibal was and caught him and put him in jail so Red Dragon is about Will Graham doing the Clarice Starling thing of consulting with Hannibal about a different serial killer Hannibal, the TV show, is about their relationship before he got caught. But he's he is a killer in it. Very much so. Okay. Mass Mickelson plays Hannibal Lecter. And I'm going to say that as great as Anthony Hopkins is, and as awesome as this performance is, Mass Mickelson gives the defining performance of Hannibal Lecter. Wow. Okay. I will. Yeah. I'm gonna watch it. Watch it. Lastly, I will just mention that, uh, as I often do, I bring up these uh, um, AFI lists about the greatest whatevers. So this movie is listed by AFI as number sixty-five of the greatest movies of the past one hundred years. Uh, that list came out in nineteen ninety-eight. Okay. It ranked Clarice Starling as number six, the sixth greatest hero in cinema history wow and it ranked hannibal lecter number one greatest villain in cinema history okay that is uh that is quite something yeah i guess off the top of my head i can't think of a better villain i mean darth vader Vader. (laughs) uh the shark from jaws yeah uh but who's better? Um, I guess. I guess none of the besides the shark from Jaws. Like, but even Vader. You know, there is some something about them that makes them not entirely bad. So, well, but we got into that with Hannibal too. It's almost like these villains are so appealing to us in some way that we feel compelled to turn them into heroes eventually. Right. And yeah. I think that. You know, that's what makes them so interesting is there's just enough uh, like humanity there to you can sort of sympathize with parts of what they do. Yeah. And then and then that's why they become so compelling. So, Ian, you've gotten into what you think of the movie. 
but would you consider this film to be better late or never? And the way that question is framed is that better late means that there is something essential about this film and that your movie knowledge was incomplete prior to seeing it. And now you are better off as a, a cinema consumer for having watched the film or never means that if you'd gone through the rest of your life with never having seen this film, that would be perfectly fine. Definitely better late. Nice. Just it's so intertwined with, you know, every sort of not every, but like so much art in our society that it's something you have to watch. And it's so good, dude. Yeah, it was pretty good. Ah, oh, you bastard. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, do you have any final thoughts about the film before we wrap this up? No, man, I think we pretty much covered it. I I think so, too. I think we nailed it. You might say, I, I'd fuck the movie. <laughs> but would you wear it? <laughs> I would love to cut off the movie's skin and wear it as a suit. Just walk around as Silence of the Lambs yeah, for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, Ian, it was great having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to finally get you on here. It was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Okay. Oh. And don't forget, eat the rude. Would you fuck me?